Well, today we continue our series uh, called The Essentials, uh, which is focusing on eight of the kind of big beliefs that unite all Christians everywhere. And as, uh, as our church has discussed, this is kind of timely. There's conflict, there's disunity everywhere these days, right? Uh, it seems like you, you don't have to go very far at all to find uh, someone vilifying somebody else in, in the public sphere, and it, it, it's just a hard season, right? Uh, you might have heard it said with regard to things of faith, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I've heard that and sometimes ask the question, yeah, and what are the essentials? Right? Well, the, these, are, these are them, the, the pillars of faith that really unite all Christians everywhere. And I mean, different arms of the church have kind of more nuanced conversations about what this means or that means. Pretty much every Christian everywhere believes these things. They're the essentials. Uh, The Lord Jesus is alive. He desires a healthy, vibrant, united church. And it is our delight to be that for him. So, the essentials. So far we've hit scripture and God in previous weeks. This week, Jesus. What the church believes about Jesus. Even as I say that, it sounds ridiculous. How can one summarize what the church believes about Jesus in a single sermon? It's an impossible task. So this is the 40,000-foot view, and we'll go after it by asking four big questions. Who was Jesus? What did he do? How did he do it? And why did he do it? It's the big questions, right? Who, what, how, why? Uh, So let's look to the scripture for some answers to that. We'll read three passages today, one from Colossians, one from Hebrews, and one from Galatians. First, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that's from Hebrews, the first four verses of chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And finally, this from Galatians 4. 
Just two verses, four and five. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who is Jesus? You know, the the biblical answers to that are many. Uh, Jesus, the only begotten son of the father. Jesus, the servant savior who took off his outer garment and wrapped around him the towel of a servant and knelt down to wash his disciples' feet the promised Messiah, promised all through the Old Testament. Now the exalted Christ, alive right now at the right hand of the Father in his physical body. He's the king of the universe, the one through whom everything was created, including you and me. So that the biblical answers are many. But if we were gonna pursue the question, who is Jesus? There's something very basic, very fundamental. We could say that Jesus is god become human. Jesus was fully divine and fully human. It's a basic belief of Christianity, the the two natures of Christ, divine and human. The divine nature, you heard it in what we read. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Bible says very clearly that everything was created through the Son and for the Son. Jesus was present and active in the creation of the universe and everything. Hebrews states it directly. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. God made the universe through Jesus. Jesus predates the universe. He's before all things. He sustains the universe and all life in it right now. In him, all things hold together. Noodle on that one for a while. That right this very moment, everything that makes up you is being held together actively by God. God is not way out there somewhere in the distance letting this world unwind on its own. God is holding everything together. And really meditate on that for all. That'll cause faith to rise in your heart. I mean, these are just two passages. There are so many passages in the Bible that point to the divine nature of Jesus. And, and as we've been doing through this series, though it might feel a little kind of theological book reportish we've been reading some of the classic statements of the creeds and confessions of the larger church. Today we're kind of focused on the Belgic confessions and some of the stuff it says. I want to read this to you. It'll be on the screen. Where else do you get this, right? It's so good. Listen to this. Article 10, the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only son of God, eternally begotten, not made or created, for then he would be a creature. 
He is one in essence with the Father, co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father, and the, quote, reflection of God's glory, being like the Father in all things. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. And he cites some stuff from the Bible. Moses says that God created the world, and John says that all things were created through the word, which he calls God. The apostle says that God created the world through the Son. He also says that God created all things through Jesus Christ. And so it must follow that the one who is called God, the word, the Son, and Jesus Christ already existed before creating all things. Therefore, the prophet Micah says that Christ's origin is from ancient days, and the apostle says that the Son has neither beginning of days nor end of life. So then, he is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. This is Jesus, fully God. And and sometimes it's a little bit easier for us to get that side of Jesus' nature, but mystery of all mysteries God became human. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message, that part about the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Peterson renders that God moved into our neighborhood. God came to where we are just like we are. He knows what it's like to be us. See, the the consistency of the message across biblical authors and across time is the same. God became flesh in Jesus. One more Belgic confession thing for you on the incarnation. Listen to this. So when we confess that God fulfilled the promise made to the early fathers and mothers by the mouth of the holy prophets when he sent the only and eternal son of God into the world at the appointed time. The son took the form of a slave and was made in human form, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin. Being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation and Christ not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned but also a real human soul in order to be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, Christ had to assume them both to save them both. I, I, don't, I don't know if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. I would imagine most people in this room probably do. If not, that's okay. I remember a time when I wasn't. We're all on the journey. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and, and you've gone to, to any level of depth in, in the Christian faith, you've experienced this tension of Jesus being fully God and fully human. I don't know how you experience it. In my mind, it feels like a teeter-totter sometimes. Like sometimes I'm tipped toward thinking more about Jesus as God. Sometimes I'm tipped toward thinking more about Jesus as a human being. And when I'm tipped more toward thinking about God, thinking about him as God, he feels not as close, more distant, more aloof, more unlike me. 
And then when I tip this way and he, he's kind of more human, I, the relationship starts to get cozy and I, I start to get a little too uncomfortable. I might be a little too cozy for interacting with the king of the universe, the one who's holding me together right now. What an unbelievable power. So I experience it as this, but that's the wrong image because it's not this or that. And that's the point. Jesus is always both fully. Jesus is always God and always human, fully. The one who created the universe, who holds us together right now, is our friend and loves us and welcomes us to interact with him as such. Wow! This is what Christians believe about Jesus. That's the who. Now the what. What what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to advance God's mission in the world, and God's mission in the world is to glorify himself through the work of redeeming people and restoring creation. Redemption and restoration. You know, redemption. This plan to get people back from their alienation from him. You know, theologians talk about the the very first time the gospel shows up in the Bible. Do you know when that is? It's not the New Testament. It's long before then. Genesis (laughs) 3.15. Just moments after the fall, the first gospel shows up. The promise of God that human beings will crush the head of the serpent, meaning humanity will ultimately overcome evil by God's intervention. The very first gospel. And, and the whole plan begins to unfold from there. Our, those of you fifth regulars who took up that challenge of reading through the scripture in a year, we started back on January 1. So you might still have in your mind uh, Genesis chapter 3. Remember, you read through that whole thing and, and you get to the end of that chapter and what does God do? He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and puts a cherubim there with a flaming sword, <laughs> blocking the way back in. And you read that the first time, at least I did, and I thought, that's kind of harsh, like a flaming sword, like, okay, we get the point. But do you know why? Why the flaming sword? Because God is so committed to redeeming people. He did not want to risk humanity going back into the garden, eating of the tree of life, and being forever stuck in our brokenness. It's only in the depth of his goodness that he prevented us from being stuck here forever because he's so committed to his plan of redemption. Jesus came to redeem lost human beings. He also came to restore all of creation because you do know that our sin impacted all the created order. Look at Romans. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All creation is involved right now in groaning and frustration and corruption and suffering. It's not just us who suffer. All of creation is suffering. Listen to the words of another pastor. In other words, don't think that when you suffer, it has to do only with you and your personal situation. You are part of a groaning that the whole creation experiences. 
And Jesus came to fix that by liberating all of creation to its bondage to decay. I'm I'm not a physicist, but I'm intrigued by the second law of thermodynamics. It's a fancy name for everything falls apart. Unless you keep inputting energy into a system, it will slow and decay and fall. The the simple version that I can understand is if you have a barn, if you don't maintain it, it's going to fall apart. If you have a human body and you're not as prone to exercise and caring for your body, you'll spend more time with the doctor later on in life. This is something. The, The creation is in bondage to decay. Now, Imagine a world where that is no longer true. Where creation, you and me included, is no longer in bondage to decay. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's where we're heading, Christ. No more bondage to decay. That's what Jesus came to do, redeem people and restore creation. Jesus wants to make you new. That's the what. But how? How would he do that? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Him is Jesus now. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus would accomplish the what? The provision of redemption and restoration by making a sacrifice of atonement. That's the how. And the Bible is full of different images to help us grasp the fullness of what Jesus actually did for us. The how of what he did for us. There's a great little book to which I'm indebted called Christian Doctrine by a man named Shirley Guthrie. He unpacks four images. The financial image the Bible uses to explain how Jesus did this. The scene is a slave market or prison camp. There sit captives who've lost their freedom, but a man steps up and says, I will pay the price to purchase their freedom. This is redemption, the buying back of enslaved people for the purpose of setting them free, the financial image, the military image. The scene now is a battlefield. God and the devil are at war for possession of people whom the devil has stolen from the kingdom of God and carried off to his kingdom of darkness. A warrior from God invades the territory ruled by Satan to bring these people home again where they belong. On Good Friday, God's warrior is killed and the powers of darkness seem to be victorious. But on Easter morning, he triumphs over them and sets them free. Jesus is the victor who delivers us from Satan's realm of darkness and death to bring us into God's realm of light and life. The military image, the sacrificial image. The scene is now a place of worship with a bloody altar where sacrifices are offered. There stand people guilty in God's eyes deserving of his wrathful punishment. A priest comes forward who is the mediator between human beings and God. But this priest is different than all the others because what he sacrifices is not the life of an animal but his own life. He lets his own blood be shed that we might have peace with God. The sacrificial image, the legal image. 
The scene now is a courtroom. God, the just judge, sits behind the desk and people who've broken the law stand in front of it to be tried. They hear the verdict, guilty. They receive the sentence, death. But a righteous man who has obeyed the law perfectly comes and stands beside the accused, takes the death penalty on himself and suffers the consequences of their guilt in their place. The legal image. None of them explain it, the whole deal fully. They all have their problems if you really press to the logical end. But the Bible seems very intent on helping us get one thing. God came to redeem people. Jesus did not come to this earth to give us interesting topics to discuss in Sunday school, fodder for religious debate. He came to do something. He came to get it done. And that he did. Remember his last words from the cross, it is finished. Better rendered from the original language, the debt is paid in full. The Greek word is tetelestai. It was stamped on bills when a, a debt had been owed but had been paid off entirely. It's like paid in full, stamped on your invoice. It is finished. Jesus accomplished the mission of God in the world by making atonement. Who, what, how, why? Why did Jesus do this? I mean, short answer, because he loves us. He loves you and wants you to be free. The scripture is really clear. God created everything and said it's very good. God created human beings. I'm, I'm sorry, God created everything and said it's good. God created human beings and said they are very good. I mean, biblically, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. I mean, all of us, Because of his love, God could not imagine a future without us. And here's why. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For God so loved, he gave his one and only son to save the world through him. Here's the short version. For God so loved that he gave to save. For God so loved that he gave to save us, me, you. One last piece of the Belgic confession. The recovery of fallen humanity is the title of the article. We believe that our good God by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him. Though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from God and God comforted him promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent 
and to make him blessed. Even when we're running away from God, God is running after us because he loves us and wants us back. People are the object of God's great affection. You are the object of God's great affection. And the depth of that affection was demonstrated us to, to us in, in Jesus and who he was and what he did and how he did it and why he did it. All Christians everywhere are united in the belief that Jesus was fully God and fully human. That he came to bring redemption to people and restoration to the world. That he did that by bridging the divide between us and God by sacrificing himself. And that he did all of this because God loves us. God loves us. Declores, guys, God loves you, and so do we. Whole congregation, God loves you, and so do we. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we bless you for your goodness. We bless you for the message of the gospel that is pinned to the timeline of history different from every other spiritual belief and religion and philosophy in the world. We say openly, if the resurrection did not happen, we'll put a for sale sign in front of the church and go have brunch. But it did. So God, pour out your spirit on us and help us grasp the depth of your goodness to us in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.